All right, so uh, as we've been doing for a while now, we'll read the, um, the, the New City Catechism together. And so we'll read, I'll read the question, and then together we'll read the answer. So question number nine, what does God require in the first, second, and third commandments? Answer, first, that we know and trust God as the only true and living God. Second, that we avoid all idolatry and do not worship God improperly. Third, that we treat God's name with fear and reverence, honoring also his word and works. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, you are gracious and kind to us. Uh, we come to you now uh, humble, sinners. We often get much wrong. We break your commands. Uh, often we don't think to acknowledge it and certainly not to repent from it. And so I pray that you would give us eyes to see our sin and that you would embolden us to see our sin uh, as we understand more and more the gospel, that our righteousness and right standing is not dependent on our keeping the commandments, but rather on the commandments already kept by Jesus and that his righteousness is now ours through faith. And so would you help us to rest in that? And Father, I pray you would bless our community, uh, that you would keep us safe, uh, especially those in Redeemer Church, even as this pandemic um, is um, raging throughout the world and the country. There has been, have been signs of good news, of it relenting, uh, with um, people either having it, being vaccinated, or whatever it might be. But Lord, we pray a return to normalcy, uh, that we can go back to uh, many of our former practices as a church um, that we enjoyed before the pandemic struck. And so I pray you would uh, keep us safe. I thank you um, that, uh, that you have kept our church family safe during this season, uh, and even safe from um, the, the backbiting that can happen within any group as we navigate these times. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bless our time this morning, um, that we are gathered here, uh, probably in some ways as a routine, but would you um, open our eyes that we are here on the Lord's day, to worship the Lord, to give him the, the glory and the honor uh, that is due your name. Uh, and so would you open our, our eyes and stir our hearts, our hearts towards that end. And Jesus, in your name that we pray, amen. Our scripture reading today will be from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Mark 6, 1 to 13. This is the word of God. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out uh, among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. 
So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. COVID vaccines have been starting to, to roll out uh, the last few months. Some of you might have uh, even even had uh, had the vaccine, or you plan to. Um, and and I don't know a whole lot about how how these work, um, but uh, but the way I understand it, these vaccines introduce uh, antigens of the disease into the body, uh, and these antigens will then produce uh, antibodies that fight against the disease in the body. And so, uh, so when this happens, a person becomes inoculated to whatever the disease might be. And so, so one way to consider it is, is you get introduced to just enough of the disease to not affect you, but to really kind of fight against the disease. And so being inoculated against a disease is, is a good thing because you have just enough of the disease that you can kind of fight against it and not be affected by it. And so being inoculated to bad things is a good thing. But we can also become inoculated to good things. For example, it is possible to be so familiar with Jesus and the gospel that some might become inoculated to Jesus and the gospel. And we can see this in in highly religious places like Mississippi. People grow up. They grow up in the church. They hear the gospel. Maybe they make a decision for Christ at a youth conference or something. Even they might get baptized. But, but really, in that whole time, they might have only been inoculated to the gospel. They got just enough of the gospel that they're not really affected by it. And, and there can be a type of familiarity with Jesus and the gospel that the belief in the gospel, the belief in Jesus doesn't have much of any effect on them other than in hard times, it's a source of comfort, or perhaps when they're in a pinch, they pray. And, you know, it's interesting, in Mark chapter 5, we're in Mark 6 this week, but in Mark chapter 5, we read about this crazy demon-possessed man. And, and he came to faith in Jesus at the end of this story. And in Mark 6, we're seeing that Jesus' own family, his brothers and his sisters, they aren't buying it. They, they, don't, they don't believe who he is. And it actually seems that they're a bit annoyed with him. So this crazy demon-possessed man was able to see what Jesus' own family couldn't see. And and perhaps one of the problems that Jesus' friends and family might have had was that they were inoculated to Jesus. They They were too familiar with him. He's just a carpenter. This is Mary's boy. We know this guy. He's no big deal. And, and, and this is why Jesus said that, that a prophet is not honored in his hometown. There can just be this over-familiarity with them. And they had just enough of Jesus to miss them, just enough Jesus to become inoculated to them. He's a good guy. The teachings are fine. But this whole talk about people acting like he's the God or the Messiah or something, that's got to end, right? So we read in this text that they actually took offense at Jesus. So Jesus' own hometown, his own family, they took offense with him. So, so what I want to do here today, we looked at really two passages here today uh, in Mark chapter 6. In, in verses 1 through 6, we look at Jesus being rejected by his family, his hometown. And then in 7 through 13, we see Jesus sending the disciples out and, and, and them being rejected or them likely being rejected in the future. So the, the two categories I want to consider are first the rejection of Jesus and then the rejection of the disciples. So first, the rejection of Jesus. 
Jesus goes back to his hometown, and the people are astonished at his teaching. And we read the, the first set of questions the people have in verse 2. Where did this man get these teachings? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works being done by him? So a measure of respect is given to him. You can't deny Jesus seems to be going places, right? He's a good teacher. There's some honor with that. But then the second set of questions we see, they're actually not quite that impressed. In verse 3, we see this. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and, jo and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not, the, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So, so the tension with the people in Jesus' hometown is that Jesus seems great, but not that great. Like people are making a little bit too big of a deal of him, and they know he's not that big of a deal. And, and we've probably been there before in, in some way or another. Maybe there's somebody you knew, and all of a sudden they became really successful or popular or, or whatever. And, and, and maybe in that rise, people started to speak really well of them, and you just notice this momentum going towards this person that seemed like he was just this praiseworthy. And you just thought, I mean, they're not that great. I mean, they're okay, but not that great. And then there's just a small part of us, and I don't know if I'm the only one, but you've seen somebody maybe like you that you grew up with, you're familiar with, and they start to get all this praise, and you just want to be like, yo, let's turn it down a bit. They're okay. Average at best, maybe, right? And it's slightly annoying. And so as great as Jesus might have been in, that, in the synagogue that day, his hometown, they knew he was just a carpenter. He was the guy that could help you with your door when it kind of got off, off the hinges or whatever. He was just Mary's boy. We know his brothers and sisters. And you know there was somebody in Nazareth, and they were like, you know what? This Jesus guy everybody's talking about, like, I actually, my, my brother-in-law works with, with his brother, and they're kind of annoyed with him. They think he's just a little bit too much and needs to tone it down a bit. It was probably that kind of talk. So they, they were probably slightly embarrassed with him. And so Jesus' own family is not buying what he's selling. And in John 7, we see expli explicitly that his brothers did not believe in Jesus. And look, I would imagine it'd be difficult to be the brother of Jesus, you know, some of us might have been in families where there was one sibling or person that kind of outshined the rest, and it's kind of hard to live under that shadow. Well, Jesus' brothers really did have a perfect sibling, right? I mean, he, he was perfect. He was the son of God. And so there, there, there might have been a sense where like Cain and Abel, where there was just this, this discomfort with how good Jesus was. And so it seems like his family might, Jesus, his family might have had a bit of beef with him. They didn't always like him, it seems. And they certainly didn't believe in who he, who he was saying he was. And look, so it, it could have been that, that, that things that, 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 that would make them people drawn towards Jesus, like his profound teaching, and we'll read his authority, that, were, that was making people come to Jesus. That might have been the kind of stuff that was repelling other people away. Like he speaks with too much authority. He's a little bit too much. He, he uh, is a bit demanding in what he's saying. And so with all of this that we see, that, that this crazy demon-possessed man comes to see Jesus for who he truly is, and his own family misses it, one lesson we learn here is that proximity to Jesus does not make someone a follower of Jesus. All his hometown saw was that he was a carpenter, Mary's boy. And the same thing is true today. Proximity to Jesus does not make someone a follower of Jesus. 
Growing up in church doesn't make someone a follower of Jesus. Knowing the gospel doesn't make someone a follower of Jesus. And, and certainly people can grow up in and around the church and they see Jesus as something less than he really is. They might see Jesus as a Republican Trump supporter. They might see Jesus as someone who doesn't, who generally doesn't approve what we would call a good time. Jesus is against sex and against whiskey, beer, and wine. Jesus likes boring meetings on Sunday morning. If something is funny, Jesus probably doesn't like it. And we just have this version of who Jesus is that is not very attractive. And so the, the point I'm making is this, is that people can be around Jesus, meaning around the church, around the Bible, around Christians, and they can become inoculated to a lesser version of Jesus and the gospel. And, and, and some might reject Jesus because their parents were uptight. Some might reject Jesus because they don't like Trump or consider themselves Republican. Some might reject Jesus because they think to follow him means they have to forfeit their personality and become obnoxiously nice. And they're not interested. So what happens is they become inoculated with a weaker version of Jesus. And so when people hear the gospel, it's just ho-hum to them. Been there, done that. Yeah, I, I made a decision for Christ in seventh grade. I got baptized when I was eight. Whatever it is, and they become inoculated. They got just enough Jesus that it doesn't affect them. And what is crazy is that the, the crazy demon-possessed man is different. He actually had an advantage over the family of Jesus. So, so where the, the crazy demon-possessed man had an advantage was that he might not have been saturated with the Bible and the, and the Christian community or the Jewish community. And all he knew is he needed Jesus. And his family was just overly familiar to them. And, and that's probably why in Matthew 21, Jesus said to the, to the chief priests and the elders, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. So what Jesus is saying is in Matthew 21, and he says other things like this other places, a prostitute. Currently, there exists a prostitute. In our city and state, there's people who sell themselves for money. And they have an edge on some people who grew up in the church. We should consider that. Why is that? Part of the reason is, is that one group's going to see their need for Jesus, and the other group's going to become inoculated to Jesus. And it matters. Now, you might begin to wonder, since this is a church crowd, obviously, do I really follow Jesus, or am I one of those who've just been inoculated by the gospel? I grew up in church. I've never known not following Jesus. I'm, I'm in the Christian culture. I'm knee-deep in it. How do I know I'm not, I haven't just been inoculated to the, the culture? I'm not just a part of the, the Christian culture. I've just been absorbed into that. I've just grown in it. It's all I've ever known. Well, I think there's one way to know uh, where you might stand on this issue if you become inoculated to Jesus. And I think it, it, it becomes more clear in the next passage when we consider how the disciples would be reject, re rejected. So my second point I want to consider is the rejection of the disciples. So Jesus sends out the disciples in uh, six groups of two, tells them to travel light, to stay with those who receive them. And when they go to a town that doesn't receive them, to, to shake off their dust from their feet as a sign or a testimony against those people in that town. And what is their message they're, they're going out to proclaim? We see their message in verse 12. It's this. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. 
They proclaimed that people should repent, turn away from their sin, and turn towards God. So what's interesting, in Mississippi, the gospel message has gotten out pretty well. You would have a hard time finding someone, if you told them Jesus died for sins, they would say, what? What? Are you kidding me? Are you serious? Is this how it works? Like that message has, has gotten out. And, and, and you, would, you could find people that would know that. You would be almost hard-pressed to find somebody that didn't know that. And, and, and not only would you find people that would know that, they would be like, yeah, and I, I believe that. Now, I should also say, I'm sure there's some people who haven't heard the gospel, who that would be news to, or there's some people that have heard a false gospel uh, or twisted their gospel somehow in their own minds. I'm just saying the message, Jesus died for sins, is out, at, at least in our context in Starkville, Mississippi. But many people who have heard the gospel, they've believed the gospel, and they know it's by grace, through faith, in the finished work of Christ, and they are still not reconciled to God. So here I'm saying, I'm saying people have heard the gospel and believed the gospel and still aren't saved, still aren't reconciled to God. Now, hopefully, that'll make y'all flinch, right? Because I want to be obnoxious about the gospel, that it is the free gift of God, that it's so, it's so free, it's annoying because you think if you've done something to get it, you don't got it. It is as free as free can be. But look, we need to understand that part of what genuine faith is, it, it includes repentance. And there's a kind of belief that can be an empty belief. And the Bible is actually clear about this. It's, it's a kind of belief where they have the facts of the gospel, and, and they're actually correct on the facts of the gospel. It's by grace, through faith, and not by works. But they never quite reach repentance. They never have remorse over their sin or a weighty sense of guilt before a holy God that makes the, the gospel and grace amazing, that actually changes someone's life. And that leads them to reorient their life around this God of grace who has dealt with them so kindly and graciously. And the Bible describes this kind of faith as faith without works. In James 2, 17 to 20, you guys are probably familiar with this. It says this, it says, So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Look, demons believe the gospel. They, they know the facts of the gospel, and they're not arguing with the facts of the gospel. Demons would affirm that Jesus died for sins. But that belief is not paired with repentance. And sometimes in our eagerness to rightly demand that we are saved by grace uh, through faith and not by works, we can wrongly begin to imply that saving faith doesn't include repentance. So faith without repentance is something other than real faith. And we, we see something similar in Hebrews 10.26 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So if someone is involved in unrepentant, habitual, deliberate sin, then they need to have concern for their soul. Maybe they've affirmed the facts of the gospel, but they haven't repented from their sins and continue to live their lives with themselves at the center. And that might be why people are so offended by Jesus 
and the apostles. It wasn't just that their teaching was great and had authority. It might have been that all of that great teaching and all of that authority was pushing towards repentance, towards them actually putting in their faith into a response. And maybe that was where the offense came in. And I imagine it is where the offense was. And when someone has become inoculated to the gospel, to Jesus, it's often because they have just enough information about Jesus and the gospel to get all of the facts about the gospel straight, but never reach the right response to the gospel. Or, or to think they don't need repentance because they can pass the gospel test. They know all the right answers. They can, if they want, they can, they can share the gospel. They can be an evangelist. And, and, and this is instructive to all of us because we become so familiar with Jesus that he becomes more of a subject of study than a real person that we begin to reorient our lives around. And, and for those of us who enjoy theology and reading, have we stimulated our minds that we have dulled our hearts and no longer feel the horror of our sin and our need for constant repentance? And remember, as the, the Christian life is, is, a, is a life of constant repentance, as Martin Luther said on the first of his 95 theses that he nailed on the, wall, on the church door, he says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. To become a Christian, you don't just respond with belief, but with repentance, and a repentance that continues throughout all your life. Um. Many of us uh, have been heartbroken over the last couple of months as the news has broken about Ravi Zacharias. Uh, if you don't know who Ravi Zacharias is, he's a, a famous apologist, uh, a, a brilliant defender of the faith, uh, very winsome uh, and super smart. He actually died last May. Um, and, and before his death, and, and especially after his death, uh, a, a lot of these accusations began to surface. Um, and he vehemently denied all of these accusations while he was living. But after the inve uh, investigations have gone through, it seems undeniable that he was, in fact, guilty. Um, it, it appears that his life will forever be marked as being a brilliant apologist and an abuser of many women. And, and, and what should terrify anyone who cares about Ravi Zacharias is that he never repented of these sins. And that, that, that makes me worried for his soul. His life is evidence that you can be a first-class theologian and maintain an unrepentant lifestyle. And look, I don't want to set good theology and repentance like against each other, like choose one or the other. We should, we should shoot for both. But it would be better for you to have bad theology and live a life of repentance than to have really good theology and a life void of repentance. Again, aim for both of these, but good theology without repentance is useless, and you can do a lot of harm. And with, with bad theology that includes repentance, man, there's a lot of hope there. The message of Jesus and the apostles is offensive because all of that authoritative teaching is going to eventually bring you to a crossroad to repent or not to repent. And as Christians, we should, we should not be the kind that are easily offended. We should give up trying to maintain our perfect status. We are, we are sinners who sin. And we often require others to point this out to us because we're blind to it. And when they do, we can tend to become offended. 
And if you are one who is prone to being easily offended, then you need to know that is a problem. That means the gospel has not sunken down deep into your heart yet, and that you're still trying to maintain some form of goodness that you're trying to defend. And you haven't come to terms with your sinful nature. We are all worse than we think we are. You are not better than you think you are. You are worse than you think you are, me included. We are more sinful than we can ever imagine, and the penalty for our sins before holy God is intense. God's judgment and wrath is intense because we are more sinful than we realize. And and honestly, we probably don't think we deserve what we understand God's judgment and wrath to be. But it is. The, the, The penalty does fit the crime, whether we think it does or not. And we have no hope except for the grace of God alone made known through the work of Jesus Christ. And that is an offensive message. Not only that you're bad, but you're so bad you deserve God's wrath and judgment. And outside of the Son of God dying, you have no hope. And look, if we can embrace that part, that we are that bad, then we should be able to to be okay with other things that, that might be pointed out to us about our sin or where we might need to repent. We should not be, Christians who understand the gospel, should not be easily offended. There's a, there's a story about Charles Spurgeon, um, a famous preacher in, in England. Um, and, uh, and anyway, after the service one day, uh, a lady came up to him and just unloaded on him and just talked about how he's the most ungodly preacher you know, she's ever seen or heard and just went on and on and on about him. And he just kind of stood there and took it. And then she marched off. And after she marched off, he leaned over to the guy that was standing next to her, to him, and he said, and she doesn't even know the half of it. And what he was saying there is just that he's not going to defend that he's good. A Christian knows that they are bad and probably worse than they imagine they are. And so we should be able to take, we should be able to take uh, people critiquing our character, whatever it might be, without being offended. And one of the most surprisingly sweet things about the gospel is giving up the argument that you're a good person. There's a sweetness with being done defending yourself to sincerely locate your own righteousness in Christ. And look, it is a tiring and miserable and lonely life to be easily offended. And I should qualify this. I don't think I need to. I just want to say it's just like, look, sometimes you might have a false accusation that you have to defend. So I'm not saying there's universally, you just have to accept everything that someone says. But what I am saying is that we're prone to overly defending ourselves and being too easily offended. And that's tiring. And it's miserable to be easily uh, offended. And, And if you are one who is easily offended, then you might want to consider if you become inoculated by the gospel that you've not found the sweetness of the gospel if you're still easily offended. And if you have been inoculated by the gospel, then you will lean on your own goodness and be easily offended. But if you have come to terms with how bad you really are and how your righteousness is truly in Christ and Christ alone, then you will no longer be under the tyranny of being easily offended. And wouldn't that be sweet? To, to be immune to other people talking about you being bad in some way and to be able to almost laugh at it and say, they don't even know the half of it. And we can begin to respond the way that Martin Luther encouraged people to respond when he was, he was talking about the devil's accusations, when the, the devil would accuse him of being this great and terrible sinner. And then 
this is how Martin Luther said that we should respond to accusations of our people uh, accusing us or the devil accusing us of our sins. Martin Luther said this, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who has suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. That's really good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are worse sinners than we realize. But you have done all things necessary, that our righteousness is secure, not in our performance or in our keeping of the commands, but on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And so may we rest in his righteousness and his righteousness alone. And when it comes to repentance, may we be quick to repent, understanding that we think better of ourselves than we should and that we are more sinful than we realize. So would you make us a people who are not easily offended, but who are quick to repent because we are grounded in the love of God made known to us through the gospel. And Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.